Today, continuing the conversation about what might be the oxymoron where Christianity and politics meet. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. You know, as I mention that phrase again, the oxymoron of Christianity and politics, I'm not saying it is an oxymoron. I'm saying it might be in some ways. In fact, I was having a conversation with someone today. Uh, it's Dr. Jeff Warren. I'll mention who it was, the pastor at Park Cities. Uh, he spoke in chapel at Criswell College recently, and we went out to lunch afterwards, and I was talking with him, and he and he stated it this way, and we weren't even talking about this. He just brought it up on his own. But he said, you know, it's it's obvious that everyone's political. Everyone's political in some way. That's fine, but you don't have to be partisan. And so that's another way of uh, of uh, of saying and hedging what I'm trying to get at when I say there may be an oxymoron there. It, but it, but it's also only a part of it because the other part of it has to do with something I want us to recognize about the values of Christianity, the values that undergird Christianity from its very beginning in the teachings of Jesus himself, and certainly teachings present throughout the New Testament. I think they're present throughout all of Scripture. But those values that underpin what we believe as Christians, and then how we come to, how we learn to express those, meaning how we come to express those, when the world is no longer ruled in monarchies and, and uh, empires, uh, but instead in a world where we believe in representative government. And all of a sudden, we're making decisions about what the country is going to do or what standards we're going to set for our society. And in, those, in that context, which is different in, and especially different, where Christianity has had a foothold in the conversation about shaping that society from the very beginning, we've got to figure out what, what that's supposed to look like. What form is that supposed to take? Because uh, the, the way Christianity formed in the first century was subversively and against the powers that be, so to speak, you know, that bead, that were. So uh, the point is, we have to figure that out. Now, I'm not trying to figure that out in this conversation. I'm just intro I'm introducing it as a part of that, at that as a part of the context for this conversation, for this talk, which is about how those values should reveal something to us about the narrowness with which we have tended to approach politics as Christian in only one way and I think missed the bigger picture of just how influential Christianity has been on all sides of our politics and how myopic we've been in understanding where that Christianity has been present in those different expressions. Okay, 
If you can make sense of all those sentences, good for you. If not, please hang on, because the whole point is to sort of explain why I'm saying it that way. So what we began with in the discussion, and I'll, I'll just skim through this, what we began with in the discussion was an acknowledgement that Christianity has underlying it from its origins uh, a respect and value for personal liberty and conscience. We gave more context to that in the previous episode, so you can go back and listen to it there if you're not aware of what I'm talking about. I understand the difference between individualism and then what I'm describing here as Christianity's early respect for personal liberty and conscience, so for the freedom of conscience. And again, that's I don't mean by that the same thing that we mean now when we talk about individualism, but that's always present in the response of the Christians to the authorities who are speaking to them and in their willingness to go all the way to an execution uh, or an expulsion from a city because they're going to take the stand for the thing that their conscience has compelled them to commit to. So there's, there's always that present in Christianity. So personal liberty and conscience, political submission, which seems almost on the opposite extreme, meaning there is in Christianity a, a, a built-in respect for the authorities that God has put in place over us. A king is king because God has placed him on the throne, even if he's wicked. The fact that Paul says that in a context where he's facing judgment and, and potential execution is a perfect testimony to what I'm talking about. There is an extreme regard or respect for the authorities that are in power, wherever they are, and however corrupt they may be, a legitimate high priest family or the usurping high priest family, as in the ones that the apostles faced in the book of Acts. So personal liberty is one, but the other is a respect for political authority, political submission. And then there's benevolence, the obvious one, the one that most people think of automatically when they think of Christianity. And by most, I don't just mean evangelicals. I mean when people think of Christian values, they think of feeding the poor and caring about the disadvantaged and taking up the cause of the powerless, something like that. So all three of those are values that undergird Christianity. And then what I, what I was doing last time in the episode was avoiding talking about the whole historical journey from uh, Constantinian and Middle Ages Catholicism and Christianity through the Reformation and the Radical Reformation into the free church movement of the transatlantic countries. You know, I'm, I didn't, I, I, I didn't say it in the, in, in, with that intonation, but really we were skimming it like that. It's like, we don't have time to talk about all of that stuff, but you can imagine the, the variations on the Christian expression of politics and authority and government and so on, when you have that much radical transformation taking place in how governments are being formed and in what the church even looks like. So if all of those changes are taking place, you can imagine how much a variation there is by the time we arrive in the new world and particularly where I want to talk about it, here in the United States, in the United States of America, what the Christian expression of politics might look like, and pretty much all of our expressions of politics, all of the different slants and angles we put on it, all of the partisan sides that we put on it, 
are informed by Christianity. They're all shaped by it. And you can say, well, that's the opposite of the case. We have a secular humanistic uh, approach to uh, politics, and then we have a Christian approach to politics. And, and that response would be the reason that I'm having this talk, uh, because it's just not the case that there's one side that's purely evil, atheistic, secular, and there's another side that's purely righteous, spiritual, and eternally valued Christianity. That's just not the case. And what I want to illustrate is why that's not the case. That does not mean that I think every political position is correct. It doesn't mean that there are not horrific positions held by some parties and by each party in some cases. There are. There are things that we ought to disagree with. This is not me saying we have to just clap for everything that happens. Oh, that's such a good decision. Good job. Like, uh, you know, at, at my grandchildren's soccer games, everybody's a winner. Not everybody's a winner. And some policies are horrible. But that doesn't mean that I'm able to simply write off half the population and say, well, they must not have any grounding with any values whatsoever that I could care about. That's not the case. So how do those values express themselves in contemporary, especially, American religion and politics? That's what I'm talking about. And this is a, I realize this is a huge, broad, high flyover on the topic. I acknowledge it. There are very few details I'm giving, but I think you can acknowledge that what I'm describing is accurate. I do, I, not only do I live in this culture, I look at it. I look at it all the time, and I care about understanding where these ideas are coming from. And as I hear people who should know talk about it, I hear things that reflect these truths, these things that I'm claiming that I, that I think are reflected in the way we do our politics and practice our Christianity right now. So what am I talking about? Okay, so let's, let's take the first one. And, and I'm going to do them in a different order. Uh, in fact, I'm going to start out with the last one that I mentioned, the last Christian value that I mentioned of benevolence. Let's talk about that one for a second. In, so in other words, this is the question we're trying to ask. Where does the Christian value for benevolence, you know, just kindness, taking up the cause of the underprivileged or the underrepresented or the disenfranchised, where does that show up in our politics? And first, I want to say this. In ev this is about that value. Where does that show up? In every version of Christianity that, I, that, that I'm familiar with, Catholicism, Reformed, mainline denominations, the radical Reformation, the denominations that consider themselves outside of that, in every form that I know of that Christianity takes in our culture, it is not hard to find examples of the inclination toward benevolence as the principal religiously informed motivation, even for political engagement. That is, it's a primary expression of believers, of Christians, in, well, here in America, I'm saying it here because this is the culture I know best. I just, I don't live other places, so I can't say there as well as I can say it here. But here, Everyone says, well, of course, I'm doing this because I want to make a difference in the lives of the underprivileged, or I want to make a difference in the lives of the underprivileged, so how can I help? What can I do for, to, to make life better for other people? In a non-political context, it's, it's obvious that this is the case. 
I don't know any version of Christianity without some evidence of those teachings. You know, people have food pantries and provide disaster relief and will make pro bono counseling available for individuals in their congregations or in the community. They have addiction recovery programs and they build hospitals for crying out loud. We have Baptist hospitals and Methodist hospitals and Catholic hospitals. And why do you think we have those? Because they're just getting big donations from the Methodists? No, it's because the Methodists said, you know what? We should be doing works of kindness for people who are in need. And in the 19th century, especially in the beginning of the 20th century, they started building hospitals. I'm not saying that about the Methodists. I don't know their timeline. I just know denominations were building hospitals then because that's when the medical industry was becoming full-fledged, you know? And so that was principally brought about through these charitable organizations. It's where the word charitable comes from. You know, it's it's an expression of Christianity. It is charity. So anyway, the hospitals, homeless shelters, soup kitchens, all of those, they're everywhere. And why is that? Because, and it's, and it's this, in every form, from people who agree with everything you think about Christianity, every detail of it, to people who don't even believe the very fundamentals that you believe are essential to being a Christian, those people who hold to any form that carries this name of Christianity, they have those underlying values. Super easy to find examples in every branch of Christianity, of people who understand the importance of Christian benevolence. And it is also present in our politics. So some denominations, in my experience, are prominently built around a progressive political agenda. And in our culture, where so much was built around, you know, uh, the value of the self and lifting yourself out of the mind and independence and uh, liberties and all of that kind of stuff and basically free market economics in a society that was built around that from its origins, from its beginnings. In our culture, a progressive political agenda obviously means promoting, for instance, welfare and not shying away from taxing uh, everybody so that you can help, for instance, the elderly or those with medical needs, or you can provide better resources for blue-collar laborers, you know, people who in some way are not able to meet their own needs or uh, rise to the level of having the power to help their class meet its own needs. In some denominations, there is a focus on how to serve those communities and how to represent their interests better, even at the political level. And I mean, surely you've seen that too, and you've heard that. So you know what I'm talking about. That path, that path that says we're going to serve those kinds of needs in democratic politics, meaning where we vote and we do things the way we do them in our society is fairly straightforward. The government, and and I'm just putting this in basic terms, right? The government has enough power to keep those who have private power from abusing those who don't. So in other words, the government's so big, it's like the Leviathan in Thomas Hobbes' works. The government is so big and so powerful that we can use it as the tool for keeping the big and powerful individuals from abusing the disenfranchised individuals who are in that society, right? So uh, you do that, for instance, with taxes. The government can tax the wealthy and then take those tax incomes and distribute them to people who don't have that wealth. 
can be in a welfare system. It can be in just a handout, whatever. It doesn't matter. It can be workfare, whatever. The point is that you're redistributing the wealth. You're saying we're going to make it possible for those who don't have anything in our society to have a safety net. And we're going to provide for them with this welfare system or the redistribution of wealth in some way or another. And there are others who would take that and apply it to laws that, you know, very directly strengthen the vulnerable or weaken the powerful, uh, you know, strengthen the vulnerable with laws that protect unions, for instance. I'm not a big union fan. I, I'm not I'm not having that conversation today, I'm not making the debate. I'm making the point that there are some Christian contexts in which that is the political issue that the church ought to be talking about in their view. And and that and that's fine. That that that's that's perfectly fine that they do that. I'm not saying I agree with the politics of it or with the outcomes of it in terms of politics, but I'm saying it makes sense that a person would say, I'm trying to serve those who are disenfranchised, and this is the way I understand to do that. A lot of our arguments come down to, uh, with people who hold a position like that, a lot of our arguments just come down to pragmatics. I don't think your system will work as well as this system would have worked. Well, that's not an ideological disagreement. That's just a disagreement over what the best method is for getting there, right? So we don't have to condemn them for holding that view, and we can understand where it came from. And, and, and so that's one. So in the, in the first one, benevolence, we can see where it would show up politically in our culture, right? In, and we can see where it has shown up politically in our culture. In the same way, and especially in the context of the free church movement, and we talked about this in the previous episode, so... It's one thing to talk about, uh, you know, the Reformation, the Radical Reformation. The free church movement is the idea that this is not a state church. You know, churches are not endorsed by uh, the government and empowered by the taxation of the people. Uh, It has to be freely chosen by the individuals who are going to go there, right? In the free church movement, it's not hard to see that the inclination toward personal liberty becomes often the principal driving religiously informed motivation for political engagement. So Roger Williams, you know, in Providence, Rhode Island, that's what he's doing. Let me, I'll read to you these lines, you know, as an expression of it. And this is not the only way that it could be expressed. I'm familiar with it because I'm Baptist and this is my background, right? So in the charter of 1663 for Providence plantations, he said, no person, this is how he wrote that contract where they agreed together how they were going to to function in their charter. No person within said colony at any time hereafter shall be in any wise molested, punished, disquitted, I think disturbed or disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion. That's important. In a world where everyone else had found their unity in their religion, Roger Williams was saying, and you know, Roger Williams had been kicked out of two communities because he refused to cooperate with the way they believed he should express his religious convictions, which varied over time, by the way. The man was a little unstable. So, I mean, I'm not, he's a hero and he's great and he brings a lot of value to our world. So we should be always grateful for Roger Williams. But he was a little squirrely. I mean, let's face it. He would make a commitment, and then he'd change his mind, and then the denomination would get mad at him. But then they would kick him out of the city because of it. And because of that, his response was to say, well, let's stop doing that. If people disagree with us about their religion, let's leave them alone about it. And so he did that. So no person shall be in any wise molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any difference in opinion in matters of religion. 
and do not act. This is this is the qualification for it. Now you you will still be fa- you will still face judgment if this happens, and do not actually disturb the civil peace of said colony. So saying you don't believe like we do anymore is not the same thing now anymore as disturbing the civil peace of the said colony. It's okay. But that all, he goes on to say, but that all and any person may from time to time and at all times hereafter freely and fully have and enjoy his and their own judgments and consciences in matters of religious concernment. By the way, I quoted that from that Charter of 1663 out of Leon Macbeth's Baptist History. That's the book that I, that I took it from. Uh, that, so that's Roger Williams in that charter. And the expression in our culture as a whole is obvious in the First Amendment. The very First Amendment, the very first thing where we're saying, now here's the limitation on the government, is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. But hear how that goes on to say it's about all of our personal liberties. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment, uh, an establishment of religion. I can do it. I can read it or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, or of the right of the people to petition the government for a redress of grievances. We get all the liberties, and the government gets no security. We can even gripe at you and say, you shouldn't even exist anymore because you're not doing things right. So the the freedom all goes to the individuals. I'm saying that because it comes from this convictional position that Roger Williams held and that others in the colonies were holding at the time that said, you can't force things on people's free conscience. They should have freedom of conscience in the things that they're doing and freedom of expression in these other other areas like religion, uh, communication, and so on. Okay. So, and again, I'm saying in the free church movement, it's easy to see how important personal liberty becomes in our understanding not only of our way of relating to God, but in our way of relating to each other. So, therefore, in our political expressions. Then, and, and this is important also to keep in mind, that the context within which Christianity took its biblical form made it by nature subversive to the authorities in power. Now, I'm bringing that one up because the third category we need to talk about, remember, is the respect for governmental authority. That's built into the church. It's built into early Christianity. So remember I talked about how fundamental it is. In the last episode, if you didn't listen to it, in the last episode I mentioned how fundamental that is to Christianity. The people who are discounted in their Christianity in the early church are the people who are living according to the lusts of their flesh and who are disrespectful of authority. Those are the two things, and he's not talking about church authority. So you read it. I mean, he's even talking about when Michael is respectful, or is it Gabriel, whichever one, is respectful of Satan. So it doesn't matter that the emperor is good or bad. It just matters that they're an authority, and they wouldn't be an authority if God hadn't put them there. So you better be respectful of them. That respect for authority is remarkable when you have in mind the context within which Christianity took its biblical form. And in that form, Christianity was subversive in the sense that people were told, hey, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And we commune around our commitment to Christ, not our commitment to Caesar. 
that kind of subversive Christianity is weird to think about that and yet recognize that they were radically committed to yielding to the uh, public authorities to to you know submitting to the public authorities which is why they went into their martyrdom so willingly and i, I i'm not saying that because individuals you know psychologically didn't experience the trauma of martyrdom or it was easy i'm not saying that but i'm saying the testimonies are profound I will not change my speech, and then you do what you must. You know, it will be whatever you make it. The Jews throughout their history, Israel, throughout its history, experienced that. That's part of the testimony of the uh, the books between the Testaments that we talk about, you know, the apocryphal books as we describe them, uh, the accounts of the Maccabees and things. Anyway, all of that said, if you keep that in mind, there's no way that we could expect in the New Testament— to find a book on how to exercise political authority as a Christian. There's no Christian instruction about how to maintain or have or hold political authority. The only power addressed is being held by believers, and this this is present in the New Testament because there were people who became believers who had wealth, and therefore they had power. Uh, and, but, but the instructions for them is that they weren't supposed to trust their wealth. They were supposed to rely instead on the eternal things that they had. And I'll read it to you. I've read it to you many times, or I've read it at least in this podcast many times in 1 Timothy 6, uh, at the end of 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, when he says, as for the rich in this present age, and he's talking about now to Timothy, what he's supposed to say to those who are in his congregation in Ephesus, He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Those statements are as close as you get to God giving instructions to the New Testament church to the powerful. You know, who has power? Well, the wealthy have power. Not only is there political power, there's wealth power. And to the wealthy, he gives an expression of it. So that's good. And, and we could use that as a parallel for what we're supposed to do if we're in political authority. And I think, I think we do in some ways. We apply it that way. So when representative government, and here's what's interesting about it to me, and this is the reason I wanted to do this whole, this whole I would say, episode, but these two episodes, is that when representative government arises out of the Enlightenment, there's an inherent tension present. There is, on one side, this paternalistic moralism, which, and I'm saying that, you know, harshly, like, obviously, I don't think paternalism is a good thing. And you know what I mean by paternalistic moralism. Well, I'm going to tell you what drugs you can take and what drugs you can't because I'm your intelligent father, the government, and I'll give you wisdom about what's okay and what's not. Now, I said that like a true libertarian, didn't I? So I'll tell you whether you can take your drugs or not, Sonny. And no, we should be, we should be free to take whatever drugs we want. I'm not saying that. I'm not truly libertarian in that sense. Not far from it, but I'm not completely that libertarian. However, I do have a natural aversion, and I think it's natural. I say it's natural. I don't know what it is, but it's an aversion to paternalism. And when paternalism is expressed in moralism, like here are the rules for what you must do 
to be upright in our society and the government shall enforce it, I'm really creeped out. I mean, I'm just like, that is not a role for the government. They do not have a clarity of moral uh, perspicuity in order to speak to me about what would be right or wrong in a given circumstance. So you can tell. I mean, this is I'm just naturally averse to it, right? That's my prejudice being revealed. <laughs> so, but there is a sense in which paternalistic moralism goes hand in hand with the submission to authority that's assigned to Christians. So, and, and if you want an example of that in the American experience, you just go to those early Puritan and as cynics call them, Puritanical townships. Uh, you look at where the communities were established. And if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you were putting the stocks, you know, and you get the idea that even in a rep, when you have a representative government and everyone's a Christian, then you vote these laws into place and you say, well, of course everyone is required to go to church. Where else are they going to learn these morals? And then you enforce the morals on people who don't follow them. And it sort of makes sense that people think that it's going to be expressed that way. I'm not saying that's the best expression of it. I'm just saying it's, it's part of the reality of our history. But you also end up much later in my lifetime, and believe it or not, my lifetime began well after the colonial period, the blue laws, you know, where you can't sell and buy things on Sunday because it's the Christian Sabbath. Those kinds of moralisms are rooted in this sense that we should be respectful of the government's authority. It brings order to society, and so it's our obligation as Christians to yield to governmental authority. Well, lo and behold, it is our Christian obligation to yield to governmental authority. And you can understand why Christians would say, well, if you're supposed to yield to governmental authority, let's make sure the government's imposing rules that are actually Christian in their nature and that express the morality that we value. You can understand that. And so you can see why some people would want to wield the government as Paul describes the government wielding the sword in Romans 13. So if you have that picture in your mind, you can see why the sort of moralism that can come from governments that are specifically, and I don't think legitimately necessarily, but at least trying to be Christian or religious of any form. There's that, the paternalistic moralism kind of stuff. Then there is benevolence and advocacy. This is in a look at, at these three different points of tension. And these are in tension with each other. There is present as representative governments begin to arise out of the Enlightenment in Christian values, there's going to be present a sense of the need to provide benevolence, to take care of the poor, for the government to be there for the sake of lifting people out of the mire or giving them a path out of the mire. There's going to be advocacy for the underrepresented. Um, and there are easy Christian expressions of this. Uh, the abolition and anti-slavery movements among Northern Baptists uh, in the 19th century are a perfect expression of this. Or even in England, uh, you know, during the time when uh, Witherspoon and others were so strongly advocating for the freedom, uh, the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery. Uh, that is an expression of benevolence and advocacy uh, through representative government, but not just because you believe in government's ability to bring order to society, but
but because you're a Christian wanting to advocate for Christian values, using the power that only the government's able to bring. By the way, are you, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, in reading John Adams' biography, autobi uh, autobiography, give me a break, his biography years ago, and I mean, this was decades ago, uh, I was I, I was surprised to find out that his wife was an early advocate promoting equal opportunity regardless of race, uh, putting uh, uh, young people that they had in their home into the public schools uh, that were in their community outside of Boston. I, uh, you know, I, I was surprised to learn that, but encouraged to learn that. And it was because of her Christian values. At least that's uh, how I understand the reading. So there's benevolence and advocacy, and then there's personal liberty and freedom of conscience, the third sort of leg of those Christian values. So in representative government, that personal liberty and freedom of conscience is particularly tricky. You know, how, how do you express that in government when the whole point is that you don't like the government? You don't want people telling you what to do. This is my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. So I'm going to use the government to get there. <laughs> There, some, some, something seems to go wrong there, and yet it's part of the reality of what shapes the form of our government. And so the trickiness is not that hard for us to get around quickly. Uh, the movement, the personal liberty, freedom of conscience kind of movement that we have going or had going uh, was also anti-big government. You know, it's expressed most easily in the early American experience in Jefferson's statement, that government is best which governs least, you know. That's uh, that's a, you know, that's a moral value that's sort of built into the sense that what we're trying to maximize here is liberty. What we're trying to maximize is freedom above everything else. And this one is a meeting place for some weirdly divergent values. That is where representative government comes into a form that maximizes personal liberty and freedom of conscience that's a place where utilitarianism, which is definitely not Christian in its nature, utilitarianism, enlightenment liberties, this sense of the enlightenment that comes from the Thomas Hobbeses and John Locke's and even the rationalists, Rene Descartes and the Jean-Jacques Rousseau's and all of that enlightenment thinking about how society should be formed and so on. It's a place where utilitarianism and enlightenment liberties and the Christian respect for, for freedom of conscience. They all come together in sort of agreement about what this could look like when representative government is how we're going to organize our society. So with utilitarianism, you know, hap, but so think about the conundrum here. The conundrum is that I'm trying to say, I want to promote personal liberty. And so I'm going to use the government's sword to enforce personal liberty. Give me a break. How do you make sense of that? That's the conundrum, okay? The resolution to it is, if you're a utilitarian, for instance, that happiness is different for different people. So I'm not using that sword to force you to like what I like. I'm not going to use that sword to make you care about the same things that I care about. But what I do want to use the sword for is promoting legislation, for instance, that brings about the most happiness for the most people, regardless of what form that happiness takes. So in other words, I'm trying to pass legislation simply for the purpose of keeping powers from preventing people from pursuing their own ends, whatever their ends are. I'm not utilitarian. I'm saying that's how utilitarianism would describe what legislation ought to be about 
in terms of personal liberties. The Enlightenment as a whole develops this concept of individualism and personal liberty. I'm putting terms on it that are later. I mean, they're our terms. But they are the ideas that come out of the Enlightenment. Liberty takes this new expression in individualism that liberty itself is the end. I'm not just free so I can pursue Christ. That's what I would believe I'm free for. That's the whole point of my liberty for me as a Christian. But in the Enlightenment, it doesn't matter whether that's my end or not. Liberty itself becomes the end. We want you to be free. Now, what you do with that liberty is going to matter to you beyond the question of liberty, but that's up to you. For the government, we just want liberty to be the end. That's the goal that we're trying to get at. So liberty itself becomes the good, that's in quotes, air quotes, that people want government to provide for them. So the government becomes primarily a resource for keeping itself out of our lives. And again, I'm not describing the way it is or has to be. I'm not even being prescriptive. I'm saying that's how our societies are formed when we're valuing these liberties and trying to create the society in which we're living now. So government becomes this resource for keeping itself out of our lives. And government would have intruded automatically into our lives because we need social order, right? So it imposes rules on us. You can't take that drug, I was saying earlier. You can't practice your relationship with that person this way. Uh, you've got to get a, a, a marriage license, for instance, if you want to live with that person. So we use moralistic restrictions to create social order. It would make sense for government to impose restrictions on us and violate our liberties just to promote the social order. That's just the nature of government, right? But in the Enlightenment, we recognize that because the end of liberty is so important, we want that government to be severely restricted. And so in the Christian form, that freedom of conscience before God becomes the transcendent basis for what the Enlightenment and utilitarianism were already claiming about how important liberty was. So we need to pursue liberty and freedom. That ought to be the thing that we're preserving for people. And then we're able to chime in as Christians and go, yeah, and God wants that. God wants us to be free. God wants us to be able freely to choose to follow him, which means we have to be freely able to reject him. But And I'm not talking theologically or metaphysically. I'm talking like in the society. Are we holding a gun at people's head and saying, convert to Christianity or die? Of course not, because we believe in freedom of conscience. So we have this transcendent basis for what the Enlightenment and utilitarianism were telling us anyway. So, you know, why am I saying all of that to you? Because if you look at all three of the things that we care about because we're Christians, all three of them, and this is, you know, in the list in the way that I was giving it to you today, all three of those things is you know, a respect for the authority that government ought to have and the benevolence that we have as believers and the personal liberty and freedom of conscience that we recognize that every one of us is going to give an account of himself to God, that all three of those have an expression in our politics today. And they're expressed in versions of those politics that are at each other's throats you know, that are completely opposed to each other. But it's not because they don't have some root in Christianity. It's because our politics have divided us, not our Christianity. 
So what I, my point today is not to say, so you need to join this other party. I'm not saying that. Whether you're on the Republican side or the Democrat part, Democratic side, I'm not saying you need to change parties. I'm not saying you need to change which value you're bringing to the debate. I have a set of values I'd love to argue with you about, debate about, and discuss and try to persuade you to agree with the direction that I think we ought to go to resolve these things. And I think some of that's ideological and some of it's pragmatic. I, I, I mean, all that's fine. My point today is to say we need to realize first that the claim that politics or that government is not where, that, that this is the case, that, that uh, politics and government is not where Christians should find their direction. I believe that is more than just a slogan, you know? Why Christianity is about more than politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean it really. The claim that politics and government is not where Christians find their direction, where we find our answers, our solutions, that's more than a slogan. Individuals, because they meet Christ and are transformed by the gospel, are to live differently than the people around them, than the world around them, right? Churches ought to be different within their communities because they're following Christ. That's the nature of following a different master. So churches ought to be different within their communities. The, and this, this, is, this, is that different. this is part of that difference. Government will strike us on the cheek. Government will demand our coat. Government will have us walk a mile. And we'll turn the other cheek. And we'll give the other garment. And we'll walk another mile. We're not, we're Christians first. We're a church first, which means we're different. So the competition of the power in politics is not our calling as believers. So I want us, and this is my goal in having the conversation today, to, to realize that the claim that politics and government is not where Christians find their direction. Again, it's not. I'm not saying you can't serve there. I'm not saying you can't make a difference there. Of course you can. But that's not where we find our direction. That's more than just a slogan. Secondly, to realize this secondly, that the convictional way we have determined to express our Christianity within government and through politics is not the only way that that Christianity can be expressed within that government and through politics. Because those three priorities that I mentioned above are intention. They pull in inherently opposed directions. You know, advocating for resources for the poor being enforced by the government, you know, taxing the wealthy and redistributing. Advocating resources for the poor directly opposes protecting each person's liberty, including to keep their own wealth and their own property. That Those are in tension with each other. You can pretend they're not, but they are. And if you enforce that by government you know, you create a weaker government and that weaker government can't uh, advocate for the poor as well as it could before. And if you strengthen the government so it can advocate for the poor, then you're also strengthening its ability to violate the privacy of a person who wants to keep their property and doesn't want to give it away to the poor. Those are inherently in contrast with each other, and yet they're both values that are rooted in our Christianity. Certainly, advocating for a strong government's moral restrictions and submission to authority while also advocating for personal liberty is absurd. <laughs> and I've, you know, I, I did episodes a, a long time ago 
to make this point in different contexts. And we do it with sexuality stuff. So we're going to enforce the rules uh, regarding LGBTQ stuff and say, you know, we absolutely require you to obey this moral restriction because we care about the community as a whole. And then we're going to turn around and say, but you can't require these moral things of us. You can't require us with our money to take care of the poor, for instance. And so we say it, you know, we're sort of talking out of both sides of our mouth by saying we want it and we don't want it. Part of that is just because there's an inherent tension in how these values are expressed in our Christian, these Christian values are expressed in our culture politically and through the government. This doesn't mean there's no value to what the government or our politics can accomplish. The fact that there's always tension going to be present, even in those Christian values being expressed in the government, doesn't mean there's no value to what the government or our politics can accomplish. Instead, it means we don't have to treat our political convictions as if they are the expression of our Christianity. There are a whole lot of squishy steps between reading the scriptures and coming to any conclusion about how Christians should use the power of a political office in a representative government. There are a bajillion very slippery steps in that entire hermeneutic, which means there's room for us to have some grace for people who interpret it differently. So, I'll conclude again the way I did before. Perhaps we ought to have a little more focus on how to make a difference first without wielding the government's sword. Perhaps we ought to have a lot more patience with why people on both radically different sides of the political spectrum are so, what, convictional, vitriolic, apoplectic about their political perspectives, about their presumptions of what the government should be doing. We should have more patience with that. So I tell students, when they can't see the humanity in another person, it's because they don't understand where that person is coming from. I, and I mean this, and I'm trying. It is a long, slow process. I'm sure you can tell. I want to do a better job seeing the humanity in every person. And I'm hoping you will too. Including among those who are different in their convictions about how the values universally recognized in Christianity, we all care about those things, are played out in the much more limited, finite, boundaries of politics and government. So I'll say it again. Christ deserves better than to be a Republican or a Democrat because his way is better than either of those ways. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.